Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Andy Ellis. I'm the MD at Practico. And this is the first in a, in a new series of podcasts. We used to do them back in the day, and we probably haven't done one for about 10 years. But being as that they've, uh, they've come around to being quite modern again, um, we wanted to see if uh, uh, we could get some interesting guests along to talk to about our specialist subject. So I'm really delighted that we've got Liz Harris here today, who's uh, over from Australia on a European tour. We've got a lot to talk about with Liz. She's a very, very prominent, well-respected cost lawyer in, in, uh, who comes from Melbourne in Victoria. Um, and so we're going to chop this probably into two halves of about half an hour each. And this is part one. And then I'll reintroduce part two when we get to that. Um, and do excuse the occasional noise that we might get because we're not in a professional studio. But hopefully that won't uh, spoil your enjoyment of our discussion. So, hello, Liz. Good morning. Hello. How are you? Hi, Andy. Lovely to be here. Liz is just at the end of one of her epic European tours, I understand. Where have you been? How many stops have you had on the way this time? I think we've had about five this time round. It does take us 24 hours to get here by plane, so you need to make it worthwhile and come for long enough. So we've been to St Petersburg and Amsterdam and Berlin and started in London and back to London again. Excellent, lovely. Well, it's very nice of you to spend the time. Now, for those of you who don't know Liz, um, Liz, Liz is uh, a cost lawyer um, from Australia. So in this sort of parallel universe over the years, she's done the same sort of work that we do. Um, but in recent years, you've really gravitated into more of a specialisation about um, uh, billing and alternative billing structures and pricing and things like that. So how could, just tell us a little bit about that and what you do most of the time these days. I moved into that area because a lot of what I'd done in the cost law was actually acting for lawyers and clients when they were in a dispute, uh, which was often a dispute about cost, but there was often an underlying issue there in the first place. And the dispute was generally as a result of a mismatched about expectations about what the price of the legal work was going to be. So about 10 years ago, um, I started working and writing and talking to lawyers and corporate clients about pricing on a different basis than retrospective pricing by the hour. Um, I'd have to say, in fact, more than 10 years ago because it was pre the GFC. And at that stage, I initially spoke to law firms and law firms sat there and said, well, why would we? No one wants us to price differently and we're on a pretty good wicket and we're doing well. Um, I spoke to general counsel and often the story was, well, you know, why would I want to change things? No one's putting pressure on me. Um, after all, I'm an ex-partner of, you know, whatever panel firm. I still play golf with my friends who are partners from that firm. I'm not going to change. Things started to change after the GFC, although I have to say in Australia we didn't have anywhere near the impacts that the UK and the US had, um, but procurement started to become involved in pricing of legal work. Um, so my first gigs in pricing were generally through procurement, mm. that procurement would come to me and say, you get what we're trying to do, which is to manage the company's legal spend. You're a lawyer. When we go in to the Office of General Counsel, they sit there and say, oh, pricing legal work is very specialised. You don't understand what we do. It's all 
very different from pricing anything else. So procurement shouldn't be involved. So procurement brought me in to basically have their con- help them have the conversation. Mm. So I've done quite a lot of work with um, large corporates about trying to actually get some certainty with their price. And increasingly, they are under pressure with budgets that they literally just can't, you know, run, let things run out. I've done a lot of work with government. Um, in Australia, there are um, separate um, government legal departments in each state and at federal level. They compete for a lot of work with private law firms. But again, at state and federal level, there's been a number of inquiries over the years about legal spend, about managing the legal spend, because it's a, it's, it is a big spend. Government mm. has a big spend. Mm. Um, so they've also been keen to price, have their firms price on some different basis. Um, the problem has been that, again, there's been that disconnect, that companies and government will go out with a tender and, and ask the firms to provide them with an alternative pricing arrangement. The firms invariably come back saying, uh, we are happy to talk to you about that on a one-by-one one project basis, but we can't respond on a tender basis with alternative yeah. prices. Well, on a sort of portfolio basis. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. So what I've done in more recent times is actually do some work with both government and corporates in actually restructuring the tender so that the, the client has set the price in the tender. So um, I worked with a large insurance organisation and for particular types of work, we developed the scope of work and the proposed price for that scope. For others, we developed a fixed scope of work and then went to the firms and said, price this scope of work. And it worked very well because what then happened was in second round negotiations, once that actually got to um, identify, you know, the the likely contenders, um, they came back with comments about the scope of work, um, suggestions about how to refine it, suggestions about what you took out to actually make it a you know, an exception to the scope of work um, and then priced on priced on that revised scope basis and worked well, mm-hmm. worked well. Um, there are, I've had a couple of clients who have um, agreed with a panel firm that they will give all of their work and they will scope and and price on a retainer basis, on an annual retainer basis for all of their work. Including litigation. Including litigation. Including litigation. Um, And, you know, it's, again, it's worked, it's worked well. It's worked well. Increasingly, corporate and government clients are requiring firms to do that. Uh, they're no longer accepting the excuse of, well, you know, how long's a piece of string? Mm-hmm, we can't do mm-hmm, it, da-da-da. Mm-hmm. Um, for a long time also, in some areas of personal injury, on a party-party basis um, and even on a solicitor-client basis, we've had types of work where the government insurer has set the price. So I'm not sure about the situation here, but in Victoria... Um, all of our 
motor accident claims are, um, it's a government third-party insurer. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, probably for uh, 10, almost 15 years, they have had set fees that they're prepared to pay for different types of work. Yeah. Um, they've tried to put limits on what the differential between the party party and the solicitor client costs are going to be. That has and hasn't worked particularly well. Um, and similarly in... Um, workers' compensation, mm-hmm. we have a government insurer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, again, you know, there's a there's a fixed arrangement there um, uh, with, you know, pre-litigation costs. In fact, the level of litigation in those two areas has reduced dramatically because it's all pretty formulaic nowadays. Okay, yeah. I mean, that would... There, there is an analogy with with, 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 how, with how that works over here. Not exactly the same, but close enough yeah. um, to the extent that the... Um, the largest government um, uh, paying party uh, is probably for clinical negligence work. So in road traffic accidents, and that, then you're talking about commercial insurers, private yep. sector insurers, you're not talking about a government scheme. Um, likewise, with most employers' liability cases, unless you're talking about something that would be yep. picked up ultimately by the government. So something really long-term like any of the claims for industrial disease coming out of the coal mining industry, I mean, that's gone across, you know, 30 years or more, you know, and the government at the end is on the hook for that. Um, but certainly uh, we, we, we're we now, I think it's safe to say we're now pretty used to budgeting for inter-parties costs. Mm. Um, and it's only the... the uh, the very high-end cases that tend to get excluded for that. And, and I think that, you know, the future is that more and more is going to be captured under that budgeting scheme. But but going back into the procurement area, then I think certainly our law firm clients are finding that, you know, more and more, that they're really put through the mill on on, uh, on procurement exercises uh, <clears throat> and having to quote for um, litigation as well as transactional work. Um, and... Um, you know, accepting that, I think. I mean, have, having to accept it, um, uh, and then the detail of it from our point of view is how that, that still needs to be worked out. Is when there's an expectation um, that you're going to recover costs in a piece of litigation if you win. How do you work those out? If your retainer is, you know, X million pounds a year for all your work, yeah. you know, you you yeah. haven't got an individual bill related to a particular uh, a particular piece of work. And the way our system works at the moment, anyway, is if you can't pin that down, why should anybody pay anything? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you have that situation at all, or whether you're into scale costs and that. Kind we, of stuff. We're we're still largely into scale costs, um, which to some extent makes it a little bit easier to pin it down. Um, having we, we have one scale, so the scale for our federal court, which is our. Um, it's it's not our highest court, but it's a we have state jurisdictions, then we have yeah. a federal jurisdiction, and the federal jurisdiction it depends on the legislation and, and what rights you have. Um, but you have a lot of corporate work in in the federal jurisdiction, migration work, um, uh, bankruptcy, a lot of patent work. Most patent work is probably in the in the federal jurisdiction, and. In the scale of costs, there is a specific item that says that if the 
uh, fees have been charged on a basis other than time, then they are to be assessed on a different basis. Now, it doesn't actually say what basis it is to be assessed on, Mm. but basically it leaves it very much open to somehow make a quantum merit claim Mm. for those fees. Um, it, it, that, that issue, particularly because we have scales about, well, you know, how am I going to recover if I agree a fee for litigation or if I'm doing work on a retainer basis? I suppose there's a couple of things. A number of corporates who whose work is being done on a retainer basis, the cost recovery is not a major issue yeah. for them in litigation. Yeah, I, I get that thing you know, here as and, well. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's if you're weighing it up about the benefits well, that was of retainer goodies, work, really. yeah. it's great. But so what? Um, for others where they're agreeing a fee for maybe a phase of litigation or for the whole of the litigation and a scale applies, then we're back to, you know, whether you say the good old, the bad old days of actually keeping a file that can actually prove how much time you're spending and, you know, mm. what you're doing. And you and you we still have bills of costs largely. So, and we have the traditional bills of costs, which are very much the itemised bills of itemising each letter and, and so forth. Um, so if you've got a file, you can build it up that way. Uh, I would still say that I think there's ways of tracking the work that you're doing. But, you know, we have so many chief justices, we have so many attorney generals coming out and criticising the billable hour that I think also part of it needs to be, well, if you're going to continue within a party cost recovery, then you've also got to move the system to yeah. enable recovery. You know, we've got we've inherited uh, or brought on your concept of proportionality, which... Yeah. Well, what fun. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, we're not... We're not doing too well with that, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. Well, we are, of course. We're fantastic at it now. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But um, one thing we have that I think we're ahead of you in is providing estimates of costs to clients at the outset. So okay. your, your, you know, that cost transparency aspect yeah. you're about to have to tackle, we've had to do that for... Well, no, rules say you've got to do it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the SRA... I wasn't sure that it was happening. ...does require it to happen and uh, inevitably, it, I mean, it, and it does happen, at the, you know, uh, uh, in any event, even on a, you know, okay, we've already decided to instruct you, you know, it's yeah. not, you know, you don't have to go into competitive tender for it, but look, this is the case, how much is it going to cost us? That That's, that's normal. It's been normal for many years. Quite how reliable it is yes. at the outset is the that that's the that's the big question, yeah. and uh, certainly when I've it, it won't be any surprise to you, I guess, that when we've had discussions with third party litigation funders, they they've got their own measure for how much reliance they place upon initial estimates when uh, when law firms come along at the beginning of an action, uh, and they take a lot more notice. Um, if there's a uh, court-facing budget process that doesn't actually happen until close of pleadings and first case management conference when you've actually got a little bit more of a handle on the shape of the case and how it's going to work. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, certainly, um, you know, that, that's that's a perennial problem. question I've got for, for you, and it, it's, it, there's probably not a, 
an easy answer to it, but to discuss it anyway is where does the data come from? You know, because if you're if you're going to at the one end, there's always the you know a lot of lawyers are you know more art than science. You know, and and people would say, I know how much these cases cost. You know, I've done this type of thing before, and um. If they want to go a bit more scientific than that, you know, where do they, where do they go? Because you know, historically, I would imagine that for a lot of firms, it would be a very very big job to look um, retrospectively, mm. retrofit, you know, phase type attribution to work that they've recorded in cases, um, and carry that forward into you know some sort of reliable estimate based on well if it's you know if it's that bracket of case and that that, that that's how much it used to that's how much it costs us and that's how much it should cost us for this one I don't know you know do you get involved in that work at all Yes and I've done that before but it raises an interesting question about how you price legal work anyway Yeah and I've just come back from a pricing conference in Amsterdam where I was the only one there who was pricing professional services. Everyone else was pricing um, products, pricing services associated with products, and no one, everyone accepted that the appropriate approach to pricing is value-based pricing. But that's not cost-plus pricing. So in other words, you set the price and you manage your services, you manage your scope of work, you manage your production costs to make the appropriate profit from the price. Now, that's entirely different to how lawyers are even approaching what they call value-based pricing now, which is still cost-plus pricing. Mm. So they go back and they sit there and they say, this is how much time we think we're going to spend or this is how much time traditionally we've spent looking at the data and therefore that's the price that we're going to set. Mm. Um, I don't see that working anymore because part of the issue has been that people now see legal services as being too expensive and you've got a whole lot of new entrants into the field. So you've got um, software providers, you've got, you know, legal vision who are complete your documents online, um, you've got service providers providing legal work. You know, in, in Australia, one of the, 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 the big providers providing legal services who are not lawyers are now accountants and financial planners and real estate agents. Right. And they're not pricing on that cost-plus basis. No. Um, Well, are they working back from what the case might be worth to the client and what sort of proportion of that it might be? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So we have have, um, a regime. We had a regime change that allowed um, damages-based agreements here, which is um, uh, uh, used to be called contingency fees. Our name for it is damages-based agreements, and I think the reason for giving it that specific name was because um, conditional fee agreements are a form of contingency. It's just, yeah. you know, what, what's the contingency? You know, you win, you get paid, you get paid cost plus plus sort of That's stuff right. in that situation. But um, with damages-based agreements, we've got into uh, all sorts of regulatory problems trying to get those to work 
Um, well, there's two types. There's regulatory regulatory problems and, and things that I'm told of anecdotally that fall under sort of client problems, <laughs> you know, on the basis that uh, it, whereas it all might sound very rosy at the outset to say, okay, fine, you know, your claim is for, you know, something, let's say, £2 million or something like that. So we're going to charge you... 25% of, of that. Is that. Does that sound like a good deal to you? And there'll be insurance for adverse costs and so on and so forth. And the client might say, well, yes, you know, it's a fantastic idea. Now, it settles two weeks later, you know, after, you know, <laughs> hypothetically, after three phone calls or something like that. Client not so keen then <laughs> to sort of say, well, hang on a minute, how can that possibly, where's, you know, how can that possi- work possibly be worth, you know, half a million pounds or something? Um and uh, uh, certainly in the early days, I, uh, I had one client who said, look, we signed up our, our first one yesterday and we were so nervous about this that we actually videotaped the client care interview. <laughs> so, that, uh, uh, so, there was a, and so you do realise now that, that, you know, that you've signed up for this and that means that if we manage to get an early settlement, which everybody's going to be very happy about and you're happy about, that we're going to get X, you know. Yes. <laughs> so... Um, I don't know how that one came out, but if is that broadly what you mean? I mean, obviously, massive oversimplification, but is that broadly what you mean by value-based billing? And if so, how does it work from the defendant side? Is it about how much of their potential loss you can mitigate, or you know, because sometimes it's not about completely defeating a claim; it's about you know getting it done as cheap as you can. Not necessarily. I mean, so value-based pricing can simply be that I'm agreeing what the fee is up front. Okay. You know, and, and that it's a fee that we both agree. Yeah. And from a client's perspective, that it's a fee that the client considers proportionate to whatever the, the outcome is going to be. Yeah. Um, having said that, there's a whole lot of... There, there's, there's an infinite number of varieties and combinations of value-based pricing. So one that I put in place with a corporate some years ago, it was a merchant bank. And they couldn't have a panel in place because there were so many conflicts often when they were, you know, depending on who they were acting for. Um, But they wanted to put a new financial product out to the market. And, you know, they were saying... We want our law firms to have some skin in the game like we do as a merchant bank. Mm. You know, quite often we don't actually get paid if it doesn't work and so forth. So we looked at what, at how the law firm contributed to success and they had no control over whether the merchant bank did well in selling the product to the market, you know, designing the product and so forth. But one of the contributors to success was how quickly it could get the product could be approved by the regulators because timing of getting it to market was really crucial. So the agreed fee varied depending on how many rounds of approval the law firm had to go through with the financial product. So the incentive for them was to actually get the documentation right really quickly because they maximised the fee if it went through in one round. Yes, yes. So, you know, that's quite an interesting approach. Yeah. Um, you know, again, from a defendant's approach, see, we we don't have contingency fees. Right. 
and in fact, contingency fees are prohibited. Yeah, well, they are. So, well, they are in this country. That's why the re- I, mean, I won't yeah. bore you with it now. But the regulatory problem is because if it doesn't fall within a specific, specific. Uh, statutory framework, yeah. then it's illegal at common law yeah. because it's champerty yeah. and all yeah, that sort of a- stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've sort of moved on from the champerty and maintenance, but but yeah. there there are provisions in our um, regulatory legislation saying you can't calculate your fee by reference to the damages outcome oh, okay. effectively. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can charge an uplift fee on your usual fee, yeah. which is your no-win, no-fee yeah. arrangement generally. We're having a lot of discussion at the moment, and I I used to be anti-contingency fees. I sort of saw the abuse in the US. I have totally changed my mind, in large part because of litigation funding, because litigation funding really is a form of contingency Yes, it is, yeah. yeah. Just because you're letting some other person a, a, do it, abs- why shouldn't the lawyers be able to do it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and all that's happened is we've got litigation funders, so you, you pay litigation funding uh, cut as well as your legal fees. So, yes. But with defendants, um, you know, there are defendants who whose value-based additional price can depend on things like um, timing of resolution, Um, you know, so how quickly you resolve the, there might be a bonus in it. Understood. Um, There's a whole lot of other variables there that you can have in play too. Yeah. Lots of opportunities there to compromise Ethically, isn't it? But I mean, I suppose if but there is with anything, there is with anything. I mean, I, I have this argument all the time with people, and they sit there and they say, "Well, you know, your example of so what happens if we can settle it in in two weeks?" Yeah. But there's an incentive when you're charging on time to actually not settle, and and yeah, you know, I've, I've got defendant client lawyers who sit there and say, particularly in medical negligence in your clinical Mm. cases, because we don't have, it's not regulated, Mm. um, they say, we know, you know, we we are desperate to settle, uh, particularly, you know, when they're a government agency, it's a government hospital, Um, you know, our mandate is to resolve as quickly as possible to actually ensure that the... You know, the, 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 the plaintiff recovers, but it's like drawing hen's teeth, getting the relevant information out of the plaintiffs mm. to be able to actually form a reasonable opinion to settle. Yeah. So, you know, we would like to put a system in place to actually, and, and we know that that's because they are incentivised by putting more time on the clock. Yes. Yes. So Which it, is works, the it works both ways. I, I, I completely understand that, completely understand that. Um, so of the things we wanted to talk about, we've, we've spoken a little, bit, a little bit now about alternative billing models. Um, and one thing I'll, I don't want to lose the opportunity to do is to ask you about the work that you do in group actions because that's something where, again, there's quite a, a, quite a strong parallel and, um, uh, and you do work as I understand it, as a court-appointed expert these days more than being a hired gun for one side or the other. So so tell us something about that and how does that work? Well, that's really only happened this year. So Australia does seem to be leading the way, particularly in shareholder class actions. Right. Um, I was reading something last week. I can't remember the, the number 
this year, but they have really taken off. Um, and they are all funded by, well, 90, 95% of them would be funded by a litigation funder. Mm. Um, none of them have run to judgment, although there's one where judgment is pending at the moment. Um, so they all settle at some point in time. And on settlement, the plaintiffs then make application to the court for approval of the lawyer's fees. So most of them are in our federal court, although there are some in, in state jurisdictions as well. And it's not just shareholder class actions, but they seem to be the flavour of the month at mm. the moment. We have product liability. Yeah. Um, we have natural disaster class actions. We've had some huge bushfire class actions against power companies who haven't maintained power lines and they could establish that they the the power line falling down Course caused these. the yeah. bushfire. Yeah. Um, and we've got a large one on the go at the moment about a flood. Um, so traditionally what's happened is the plaintiff's law firm has retained someone like me to provide an opinion about whether the legal fees they're seeking are reasonable or not. Earlier this year, a couple of the judges in the federal court, I think, um, actually publicly in judgments expressed the view that uh, they didn't think there was any great utility in the plaintiff's law firms engaging the same experts all the time uh, or, in fact, opining on their own legal fees to actually say that their fees yeah. were reasonable. We can assure you they're absolutely fine. <laughs> Someone did point out, one of the judges did point out, that to say otherwise then sort of raised exactly. the prospect of disciplinary action <laughs> against <laughs> them. Um, so they have been trialling appointing a court-appointed special referee. Mm. And so I've been appointed in a number of these matters. Uh, I report back to the court and then... Sometimes the plaintiff's law firms take issue with some of the matters in my report. Or, yeah. um, um, uh, the judge then decides, you know, based on that whether whether he's right. going to accept my report in whole or in part. Or okay. Because whatever. ultimately it's the judge's decision. It is. is that sort of protection for you yes. in, a, in a way? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's for a stroke of protection. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so that, that probably in a way is a bit of a parallel to... Um, we have a, if people appeal cost decisions yes. from cost judges or district judges, then they go further up. Yeah. And there's a, there's normally a, an ability for the court, for the non-specialist cost judge who's going to decide the appeal to appoint a okay. cost specialist assessor, yeah. which might be another cost yeah. judge or it could be some other professional. It could be a senior lawyer in some shape yeah. or form or, or what have you. So it's that, it's that, form, it of, is, it it's is. that form of role. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've had, you know, we've had special referees for decades um, where there's a specialist issue. So um, typically in very complex building cases, you might actually appoint a special referee to actually look at liability or, or, or sorry, damages probably rather than yeah, liability. Yeah, yeah, um, in patent okay. matters, you might assess, appoint a special referee to assess something very specific about the patent, for example. Mm. So it's really just, it's utilising rules mm. that were already there. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting process. 
Good. And um, is it is it one that you see yourself doing more? Well, you're saying it's fairly new to you, but I suppose in a way you can't control it. You know, it either comes to you or it doesn't. But you know, um, is that something you'd like to be more involved in? Look, it, I, I have found it quite interesting, yeah. and um, it 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 will be interesting to see how it develops. So. To my knowledge, there's only been about five cases. It's only occurred since about March this year. Oh, okay. Yeah. In 2018. And there's only been about five, six matters where the courts have appointed a special referee. Mm. Um, and I've been involved in three of those. Yeah. Uh, I think it's likely that that particular court might in the end set up a panel. Yeah. Um, this is all moving quite quickly. So what has also happened in the meantime, we have found with the shareholder class actions, because they're pretty lucrative, because it's almost a guarantee that they're going to settle, you might spend a lot of money. They can be very expensive, mm. but then the payout is generally can be very good. Yes. Um, that there's... And there's more and more litigation funders coming into the Australian market. Um, that where there is a a drop in a share price, and it's clear that there has been potentially some failure to disclose to the market, we've found that you might have three, four class actions initiated within you know a month, six weeks of that drop in share price. Yes. Now, the courts are then sitting there and saying, well, look, we but can't do this. With more than one claimant group, you mean? With more than one claimant yeah. group. Yeah. You know, and overlapping. Yeah. Um, not always identical, but overlapping. So flowing out of that also has been, over the last couple of years, a... Um, what are known as common fund orders... So where you have one class action and it is then an open class action, so, you know, basically it's everyone who potentially is in the class action in that class unless they opt out. Yes, okay. Whether or not they've signed up with the litigation funder. Understood. Okay. The court then may make a common fund order saying that the legal costs and the litigation funding costs are going to be borne equally by everyone in the class, whether or not they've signed up with the litigation funder right. and whether or not they've signed up with the law firm. Okay. In order to try and bring things to a close. Because what we've also had happen is we've had class actions which have resolved and then someone goes and initiates another class action. Right. So there has to be some discipline over that. So they're trying to actually yeah. bring some yeah. rigour yeah. to, look, yeah. you know, we, a, a defendant, a corporation is entitled and in, and the insurer behind the corporation because you've yeah. got directors and officers insurance and yeah. you know, other insurers there, um, is entitled to actually be able to actually bring the issues around you know, whatever the non-disclosure was to a close. Mm. So the common fund order was sort of the first step in that. Um, the next step has been um, a decision, and in fact, since 
you and I met a couple of weeks ago, our Court of Appeal has handed down a decision upholding the decision at first instance where a judge was faced with three possible class actions relating to the same matter and, uh, you know, basically said to everyone, well, put forward your best case about why you should be the firm and the litigation funder running this and I will choose between the three of you. And he did. And that was appealed and the Court of Appeal has upheld his decision. Upheld that decision, okay, fine. So... Flowing out of that, they're also now starting to say maybe what we should be doing is appointing a cost specialist early in the in the piece rather than doing this retrospective looking at it and yes. sort of saying, you know, yeah. law firm, you over-egged it in relation to how you dealt with e-discovery or something, yes, you know. Yes, yes. Um, uh, work with the cost budgets that they're having to put in in the first place Mm. and review it on a regular basis so we're sort of managing managing it pro managing costs proactively okay i i understand that so we're going to pause there so that we can uh, divide this into two chunks perhaps uh one for your uh one one for your journey to work and one for your journey home um and uh we'll pick the story up again uh at the beginning of part two of this podcast where we speak to Liz Harris.